Welcome to another podcast from Best Self Magazine, the leading voice for self-empowerment, holistic health, and authentic living. Hello, my friend, Elizabeth Lesser. Thank you for sitting down with us today and for welcoming us into your beautiful home. I feel really grateful to have the opportunity to be able to sit with you today and to discuss this book, Marrow, A Love Story. I have to say, this is an exquisite book. Mm. Truly, truly, truly. I, I cried, I laughed, I highlighted passage after passage, and I also felt myself crack open as I was reading it. And even though I knew of your journey to becoming a bone marrow donor for your sister, as I was making my way through the book, I realized that this was a book about healing on so many levels. It isn't a book about dying, it's a book about living. And as you so beautifully said in the prelude, um, it's actually a love story. Thank you. Thanks for those kind words. Well, thank you for writing this. But before we dive into this exquisite book, I also have to formally introduce you because I really want to make sure that our audience knows of the incredible experience that you've had, which has led to this moment here on this sofa. So just bear with me as I just gush about you a little. <laughs> Elizabeth Lesser is a New York Times best-selling author of the book Broken Open, How Difficult Times Can Help Us Grow. She's also the author of The Seeker's Guide, which I believe was your first book, and recounts your uh, chronicles the years of the, your time at the Omega Institute, which you co-founded in 1977. And I also just want to say you were only in your 20s, and I think that was quite remarkable and quite visionary at the time. And I don't want to bypass uh, the Omega Institute because it, I would say that it has become the mecca for holistic education and has grown into quite an amazing establishment. So kudos to you and thank you for bringing that forth to the world. Prior to Omega, you were a midwife and a child's birth educator. And today, it feels as if you have woven that rich, rich experience into the fabric of your life as a, as a wife, as a mother, as a grandmother, as a friend, as a coworker, and dare I say, activist. Um, I also had a delight to see you this past summer walking through a local farmer's market hand in hand with your grandson <laughs> and I felt like that was truly this moment where you were beaming and it made me laugh when I read this line in the book where you said Thursdays are my Sundays in the church of grandparenting mm -hmm. and it's a real it's a real description of a, quite a technicolor dream coat mm -hmm. thanks so thank you for sitting down with us today. It's a pleasure. I'm really happy to be with you. I'm happy to be with you, Kristen. You're just such a light. You're a light. Well, thank you. And back to you on that. I'd love to just to just dive into the beginning, the beginning of this book. Well, first of all, the book is de dedicated to Cal. What is it? Callie. Kayla Maggio. Kayla. Oh, that's how you pronounce it. Yeah. Kayla Maggio. Katie. So, Liz, Maggie, Joe, right. who are the four sisters that I write about in the book. I'm, I'm one of four girls. Anyone who has a sibling has an interesting family <laughs> dynamic. You talked about me being a grandmother. 
I'm getting to watch two little boys be brothers now because I'm uh, my my grandkids live right here in town with me and I get to see them almost every day. It was really interesting writing a book about siblings and then watching them create this, you know, there's the Cain and Abel story we right. all know as Westerners, like the love and the competition between siblings. We've put so much emphasis in Western psychology on the effect parents have on us, you know, we. We do a lot of thinking about, oh, that's because my mother, that's because my father. But siblings are powerful. And the relationship between siblings, it's your first real other. Parents are, are too formidable to be your right. other. Right. They're like the godheads. But the siblings are these powerful beings in our life. We play it out on our siblings. Yeah, right? from the very beginning. Out. We have a great quote about siblings. If you have siblings, they will be your first teachers in this arena. They will serve you a confusing cocktail of care and competition, friendship and rejection. Please forgive them for mistaking you as an invader. Yes. <laughs> There's something about living under the same roof with these invaders right. that is, is um, comparable to every story in the world. Like look at our country right now where we are all living under the same roof of America. We are each other's brothers and sisters, but we're busy competing, rejecting, hating, invading. invading. I really have, in my own self-examination, traced a lot of my capacity to both love and not love back to my early sibling right. relationships. Well, this book is just chock full of metaphors that relate to that experience, relate to that healing, but then relate to so much more. That's why the word healing came up to me and healing on all levels, especially in this political climate, especially in the world that we're living in. Uh, you had said that, I want to write a book about that self, the soul self, the authentic self, the true self. I wanted to explore why we forget who we are and how we can remember. Mm -hmm. You got a call. Mm -hmm. You got a call from your sister and you were the quote unquote perfect match. Mm -hmm. Uh, to be her bone marrow donor. Mm -hmm. And then people gathered around you and said, talked about how brave this was that you were going to go through this process with your sister. And I loved this quote in the book where you said, people have said I was brave to undergo the bone marrow extraction, but I don't really think so. You have to be a miserable, crappy person to refuse the opportunity to save your sibling but getting emotionally naked with my sister felt risky. To dig deep into never expressed grievances, secret shame, behind the back stories, blame and judgment wasn't something we had ever done before. Mm -hmm. And so it began. Yeah, well, what I was talking about there is what we came to call our soul marrow transplant. Yeah, we did the bone marrow transplant, which is a, a pretty gruesome experience. I don't want to make light of it, especially for my sister, and to some extent for the donor. It's an uncomfortable, painful, long experience. But when I found out I was the perfect match for my sister, all 10 of our genetic markers lined up, which is unusual. Were you all tested? Is this we all this? were tested. Okay. Siblings have the best chance to match, but it's still only a 25% chance the closer to all 10 markers matching up, the better the chance of it working. And all 10 of ours, it's called a perfect match. 
And that was surprising to everyone in the family because we are not similar people, my sister Maggie and I. And it also was a chance for the siblings to do what siblings often do. Really? You're the perfect You're the match? one? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, oh, I thought I'd be here. But when, when I found out, I did a lot of research into what does that even mean and what might happen before and during and after the transplant. And I found out that after the transplant, should she survive the transplant, and many people don't, but if she survived that, she still had several risks. And one was that her body would reject my new cells. And the other is that my new cells would get into her body and go, hey, this isn't where we live, and they would attack her. And it's called rejection and attack in, in the medical language. And I thought, wow, that sounds familiar, rejection and attack. That's something she and I, besides loving each other, we've done a lot of rejecting and attacking each other. And because of my background in holistic medicine and the mind-body connection, I thought, I wonder if we worked on our relationship, cleaning up our tendency to reject and attack. Could we teach ourselves to do that? Could we model something other than rejection and our attack and then help on a mind-body level? And I proposed this to my sister, who had a tendency to think everything I did was what she called woo-woo voodoo. Right. And she loved the idea because when your life is on the line. You want to succeed. You yeah. want to succeed. You'll try right. anything. Yeah. So we uh, found a therapist who bravely helped us. It only was a few sessions we did with him. Mostly we did the work on our own once we got started of um, just revisiting places in our lives where we built up stories about each other and never bothered mm -hmm. to check them out. I, I just don't want to gloss over that because that hit me like a ton of bricks because even if it's not with our siblings we walk around and we do that in our relationships every day mm -hmm. and and the truth is that we 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 speculate about things we make assumptions we mm -hmm. make up these stories and then we we hold them as verbatim and we carry mm -hmm. them around through the rest of our lives that's right the fact that the two of you were the perfect match when you were so so very different in so many ways mm -hmm. and you said you were the dissenter maggie was the peacemaker she was too little and i was too much we danced this dance through childhood and it took different forms at different ages my bigness scared her especially when i stood up to my parents and her smallness aggravated me you know just just showing the difference in personalities yeah. the first day you went for your injection to stimulate the the growth of your marrow was mm -hmm. also the first day you sat in your first session with a the therapist. Right. Well, it was all happening very fast because literally, if she didn't have the, the chemo to prepare her for the transplant, she would have died within days. That's how virulent her lymphoma was. So we had to do it very quickly. So it all got set up, the testing, the finding out I was the match, the preparing me, the preparing her. And by the time I was ready, to have my um, stem cells in my bone marrow stimulated to grow. It was gonna happen so fast, step, 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 that we, if we wanted to do this um, therapy session, 
that might teach ourselves how to behave and accept right, each, to other, each other, to love each yeah. other. It all had to happen simultaneously. So we found a therapist somewhat near to the hospital in New a Hampshire. A brave, brave soul. <laughs> oh, he was so wonderful, such a wonderful man. Tell us about what you had to go through physically. It's unbelievably phenomenal and fascinating and miraculous. Like right now, in your body, in my body, in everyone who's watching, listening to us now, this incredible dance of life and death is going on. We have billions of cells in us, and at every moment, millions of them are dying and being replaced. So at the end of this year, you won't have the same body at all. Your skin cells, your hair cells, your heart cells, your liver cells, your brain cells, millions will have died and been replaced. And so really, like, we have many bodies throughout our life that are replaced. And what replaces them is called stem cells. And stem cells are born in your marrow, in your bone marrow. So like. If you press on your hip right now, you feel that big heavy bone, inside that bone, miracles are happening. And I know you don't think of your hip as a miracle. We usually. take it for granted. Yeah. Right. Or you hate it. Right. Or you think your body is not up to par, but um, it's a miracle. So these stem cells are waiting in the, the deepest part of your body, the inside of your bone. They're waiting for a message. We need a new brain cell. Millions of these messages are happening all the time. And the stem cell makes its way out of the porous bones into the bloodstream and finds exactly where it needs to go and then turns into a brain cell, a hair cell, whatever your body needs. This is going on right now inside of you. In the cancer patient who has a blood cancer, this is all screwed up. The stem cells are not working correctly. So they wipe out all the bone marrow where the stem cells come from and replace them with millions and millions of cells from a donor. They need um, a certain million cells and it can take up to two or three days. Yeah, we, have to, we have to say you, you took five hours. I did. And, for, and I think, what is it? They tried to get five, five million. million and you produced 11. 11. Yeah, 11. So you were bossy even with your stem cells. <laughs> <laughs> it's true, or prayerful or something, yeah. bossy prayerful. So in order for uh, you to spill extra amounts of stem cells into your bloodstream so they can harvest them, that's what they call it, harvesting, they give you this growth stimulant that makes you produce way more stem cells than you usually do, and it's very painful. Your bones ache. You feel like you're going to explode from the inside out, and then you're hooked up to this apheresis machine that takes all of your blood out of your body, spins it, and spins off the stem cells, which look like pulverized locks. And then they're collected in this baggie, 5 million, or in my case, 11 million of them, and frozen until the time that the recipient can receive them. I also loved the story when you described how you sat with each other, and while you were harvesting, that uh, the nurses were being a little bit bossy and didn't want you to touch it, and, and you and Maggie were silly and 
holding it and you kissed it and she kissed it and it became mm -hmm. Maggie Liz. This bag of yeah, stem cells. Yeah. And we did become, we called ourselves Maggie Liz for the year after the transplant because because of the transplant itself, literally every blood cell in her body was mine. She had no more of her own blood. It was all created through my stem cells. And so we were one physically, but we felt from those therapy sessions and also from the fact that we began to spend a tremendous amount of time together, we did feel that we became one. It wasn't only we became one with each other. Really for the first time in my life, more than with my children or my husband or my friends, I really came to know what it means we are one. I had been saying those words for so long, whether you say it like Bob Marley would say it, we are all one, or you say it like a guru would. I didn't really know what it meant. I came to understand that you can be so much more yourself, your authentic self, and one with another person's authentic self. It's a mystery. But the more she and I put away our egos and emerged in love together, the more we also felt radiantly ourselves. It was quite something. I don't want to gloss over that because going into that therapy session did take bravery and I'm sure it was uncomfortable. I'm sure it was a little bit scary at first. It was scary. And you know, I have a lot of experience in therapy and workshops and I've taught workshops and I've counseled therapists and I've been in therapy and but it was scary because there's something in us humans is so afraid to be undefended you know it's as if we've spent most of our young years building up defense mechanisms and then it's really hard to let them go and to just just to be so this probably leads into your ADD would you explain that? Yeah, I, I jokingly say that ADD, which we usually think means attention deficit disorder, for me when writing this book it meant authenticity deficit disorder, that we all suffer from it. We're really afraid to show who we are to each other. Mm -hmm. Not only our weakness, but also our strength and our beauty. We, we hide from each other. Just looking someone in the eyes can be so scary. It's really very sad. And simple words, simple things like, I hear you, mm -hmm. or I'm sorry. I think sometimes we gloss over it. You know, we, we, we make it more complicated mm -hmm. than it needs to be. Yeah. We, so we, we practice it and then we... We certainly make it very complicated, but I think we do that because it's so scary just to do the simplest thing. And my sister and I really discovered that in the necessity of cleaning up our relationship. We went through things really fast. We didn't have the luxury to stay defended. And so it turned out to be way more simple, like to say to her, when I got divorced, why did you reject me in the time I needed you so much? For a while you barely le let me in your home. What was that about? I'd never asked her that. 
and it it had been 20 She's years. She's easier to carry it around and have and makes things make up, something right. make something up about right. my my own unworthiness about her meanness. When she talked to me about why that had happened, years of stuff just, just went, went like that because she told me the truth, which was not anything what I had imagined. It was about her own marriage, her own fear that if she let me in, maybe she'd have to look at her own marriage. I never imagined that. Because we make everything about us. I don't want the takeaway from this book for people to be, Okay, good. I'm going to go out and clean it up with everyone. Right. She said it was easy, Thank and you she said we should do it. Right. In the course of, of writing this book and thinking about it, I did do a lot of practicing on other people, friends, colleagues, and there are some people in our lives we, we can try to clean things up with, and I, will, I suggest trying with everyone. You're not going to die if you try and you get rejected, right. but you will get rejected by some people who are not ready to go there, don't want to go there, don't have the skills to go there, are too defended, and um, you can try, you can try every which way, but if it doesn't work, it's really good not to take it in and say, it's because I didn't do it well. Sometimes it's because this person doesn't want to play with you, and leave it at that. Give us an example of how you practiced in little ways on uh -huh. like a coworker or a friend right. or what kind of right. things. First of all, to feel in myself, I'd go to work, let's say, I'd be in a meeting and this, that tingly sense of annoyance or wanting to blame someone for the reason some project wasn't going the way I wanted it to, wasn't getting off the ground fast enough. Just to feel that kind of stickiness, that edginess with another person, to sit with it and say, I wonder why she's doing that. What is going on? Could I be contributing to it? If I am, I'm brave enough to know it. I want to hear it. And I hope she's brave enough. And I want to say it in a way that she might hear it, not as some massive judgment, but as a true invitation to move to the next level of our relationship for the sake of our friendship, for the sake of the work. And dare I say, without sounding too grandiose, for the sake of humanity moving forward. Like, I actually believe humanity moves forward in those small interactions just as powerfully as if you're like a representative at the UN. Right. Truly. If we're going to move things forward, we start with those edgy things between friends and colleagues. Right here, right in this, in this house, in this office, in this community. That's right. Exactly. With your husband, with your child, right. to find ways to invite into loving conflict. You know, we think conflict is something to be avoided, but avoiding conflict often actually leads to down the road to violence to something that did not ever have to happen right so you know it just keeps going yeah and building those right. stories you talk like we talk about false news now yeah we saw what false news created in this election cycle 
people believing stories that aren't true. We do false news all the time with each other. So back to that conflict with my colleague. You know, you just say something as simple as that meeting the other day. I didn't feel good about what we were saying to each other. I think we could probably find a way to work better together. Are you interested in going a little deeper with me? You don't have to say yes. Are you interested? Most of the time people will be so touched that you took the time and the courage to invite something like that and then see where it goes. It's not going to be easy. Right. Cut. But it's better than... It opens the door. Yes. When someone simply says, I'm sorry to you, suddenly all that anger just kind of dissipates. Mm -hmm. You know, everything that you're holding on to, you know, just suddenly goes away because you're heard, you're yeah. seen, right. you're acknowledged, right? Yes. One of the reasons part of my work at Omega has been the creation of this Women's Leadership Center is because I know we all have the masculine and the feminine within us. A part of the masculine can never say, I'm sorry. It's just something built into the defensiveness <laughs> in the masculine worldview of like, don't give an inch. And this is why I've been interested in bringing women into the leadership realm to correct, not to undo, because there's something so wonderful about the power of the masculine, but the feminine ability to communicate and to communicate remorse and to take responsibility. You're right. You're right. This, this one's on me. I hear you. I feel how hard that was for you. That's what my sister and I did in the therapy session more than anything. It was really kind of shocking. It was, ah, yes, that's what you felt. I'm so sorry. You know, I didn't mean it, right? but I do understand how you felt that. All the way back to, like, why wouldn't you sit next to me on the bus in elementary <laughs> school to say, well, I wanted to be cool, right. to be with my friends. Did that hurt you? Yeah, it really did. In fact, it wounded me on a kind of deep level. I am so sorry. I didn't know. I'm telling you, that is so simple. But it goes the distance. Right. And then I'm sure there are stories that someone can say to you, and you had a completely different view of the situation. And or say, didn't even know you had done it. I didn't even ever think that about you, yes. or I didn't ever believe that about you. or So there are all, there's all this supposition that's going yeah, on. Yeah, there is. So I still, I don't, I, the, the therapy session is so powerful because again, we can, this translates to all relationships and we don't have to wait for a crisis for this to happen, to heal these right. kinds of things. But I was so touched by the prayers that each of you said uh, going into the harvesting and to, into the, the actual physical transplant, the energetic love that you were putting into this to really make this a success. I love the prompt that the therapist gave you, which was, what do you want to tell yourselves as you go into this harvest process? And you said, may my cells flow like maple sap on a warm spring morning. May they give you sweet life, Maggie. May they keep you with us for many years to come. And Maggie said, I don't do prayers. It's more like a wedding vow. 
the wedding of Maggie Liz. I vow to make my body the field beyond wrongdoing and right doing so that yourselves know that they are home. Mm. So, so beautiful. It'll be two years in a couple of days that Maggie died. And so that really touches me. I always, I think I'm farther along the path of letting her go than I, than I really am because little things like that can just like oh, bring it back. So beautiful, but you described, I mean obviously we know how busy you are running all these things in your life, this very, very busy, full, rich life, and you described that year, that Maggie Liz year, as a year in which your life shrunk in ways mm -hmm. that you couldn't imagine, because you really took, you just basically signed out. You said, I've got to take this time, I've got to do this, be with my sister. And then, on the other hand, it was the most expansive, yeah. beautiful mm -hmm. year of your life. Yeah. I learned a lot just from the act of letting go of everything except taking care of her for a long time. I learned what really matters. I learned how our culture is no longer set up for people to do this most important work. You know, those of us who are mothers and fathers, we know how unsupportive society is now of being good parents because we're all working so hard. It's really, really tough. It's really tough to be a good parent and a good caretaker, whether it's our sisters or brothers or parents who need our help, end of life or just illness. I didn't know it was the end of Maggie's life. I thought, she thought, we all hoped. We were just nursing her. Right. And, and for a while it looked that way, that the transplant worked. All my cells engrafted in her she returned to her work and her life and her mate and her children but then the cancer came back it wasn't that the cells attacked or rejected each other the cancer had you know there's always this chance that even if one cancer cell remains hiding somewhere it can duplicate so fast that little cancer cell was hiding somewhere and started to duplicate. And once you've had a transplant, they can't give you another one. She was too, she never would have survived another transplant. And so when the cancer came back, she only lived for uh, another month. You talk about truth aches in the book, which I think is another beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful notion. And you said that ever since Maggie and I started to air our truth aches, I sent them everywhere. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that a little? Yeah, the word truth ache, um, not toothache, truth ache. A friend of mine who's an author, uh, Jeff Brown, came up with that term, and I love it. If you get really quiet and sensitive toward uh, what's really going on in you, beyond your defensiveness, we're all defensive. I'm defensive, just ask my husband. You know, it, it, once you do this work, it doesn't go away. We're all, all defended. And, but if you can quiet those defensive voices in you, just kind of sit and know, notice that the world is full of messages for you. They're there all the time. They want to tell you the truth. 
of what's really going on. Are we listening? That's what we don't want to listen because right. if you listen, maybe you'd have to do something uncomfortable. So we like move really fast, work a lot, eat too much, drink all the things we do, so that we don't have to feel that ache of truths that want to get our attention. Whether that truth is you should like stop eating so much and exercise more, or the way you're treating people is not healthy. Or that person at work, you really need to talk to them. Whatever it is, we have these truth aches that if we sit quietly, let them bubble up, and aren't afraid to feel the pain and discomfort of what our life is trying to tell us, oh, we can really just make our life so much better. So much more radiant and alive, and then we don't need all the band-aids we stick over the truth aches all the time. Whether it's food or work or being mean, all the things we do instead right. of just feeling what wants to bubble up and give us the wisdom of the way forward. So really just getting underneath. Listening. Yeah. Listening. It's scary. It's right. scary because usually a truth ache will reveal the path toward what would be better, but that path isn't always easy. Sometimes it's really hard. My, my book, Broken Open, is all about listening to truth aches because sometimes what wants to be heard is a huge-ass change. Right. It's like, your job sucks, admit it. It's about taking accountability also. Yeah. You know, it, a lot of times we just sort of self-medicate through these routines because mm -hmm. we can blame it on other things. I have right. to do this or I have to do this or it's this mm -hmm. one's fault or blah 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 as opposed to being accountable for it. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, it's like, hello, you made a mistake, you moved, you should go back or your marriage really needs some work. Okay? The whole thing may fall apart but if you keep on this path you're gonna get sick from the stress and the grief of it all. So go for it, sweetie. That's what the truth ache is saying. Go for it. And I loved this advice that someone I think gave to you, which was strength to strength. Mm -hmm. When we're helping someone else or when we're giving to someone else, it was like, give from your strength and give to your sister's strength. Don't be the big sister helping the little sister. Don't be the strong one helping the weak one. Don't be the fortunate one helping the victim. Give from your strength to her strength. Mm -hmm. Strength to strength. Yeah. It's the opposite of stereotyping. Mm -hmm. Don't look at that person through your lens, whether it's little sister who's sick, or whether it's someone who voted for someone that right. you don't believe Great. in. It's like, look for that person's core. That person has a good solid core in there. Go for that. Try to relate to that person first there. Not their political belief, not their religion, not their race, not their sibling pecking order. Find the core. Find the soul of that person. Soul to soul. Right. And even with yourself. Not just the stereotyping of other people, but the stereotyping you do with yourself. Yeah. The labels, how we hold ourselves. Well, I'm this, I'm the... That's beautiful. That's a nice way of looking at it, too. Look for your own strength. And in fact, you can't do strength to strength if you haven't first found your own.
And this, I loved this quote also, where love is the bridge. When we know and love ourselves down to the marrow of our bones, and when we know our oneness with each other down to the marrow of our souls, then love becomes less of an idea and more of the only sane way to proceed. We are one, we are many, and love is the bridge. I also wanted to um, talk about Maggie's beautiful, beautiful artwork and how you all came together and how she was determined to create this last gallery show mm -hmm. before she died. I do believe each one of us comes into this world with something to do. Sometimes it's to be a seeker, to, to know oneself, and that's the art, the art of being. And sometimes people come in to be a writer or a therapist or a great parent or whatever, a farmer. Maggie's was to be an artist. She was a nurse practitioner. She was a farmer. She was a tough character. She raised and killed her own animals. She lived in the woods. She was, she was a really hardcore person. But all the while, more than anything, she wanted to be an artist. And she was. She actually had a very successful craft business. But she never really knew she was an artist. And a lot of the voices of my parents and the voices of having to make a living and everything that kept her from knowing that. And in the year of Maggie Liz, she allowed that, that voice of purpose to absolutely take over everything. She didn't want to do anything except this new kind of art she was playing with. She let everything else fall away and she was going to get this gallery show that she had been commissioned to do done. And when it looked like she was going to die, I'm, I don't know where she got the energy and the strength and the clarity of mind, because half the time she was, had morphine in her and she was really out of it and she was in tremendous pain. Her lungs were filling with fluid. But she would get up and go into her studio and create these huge, pieces of artwork. Beautiful. Really beautiful. Very different. Which you have in yeah. the book, which are just yeah. so gorgeous. Her children actually are now carrying on her work and selling her artwork on, on their website, which is a very beautiful thing. Literally uh, two days before she died, she dragged her tiny little ass. She insisted that we bring her to this gallery that was about a 40-minute drive away um, where her artwork was being hung for a show and she wanted to be involved in the hanging of it and uh, she got herself down there and as soon as she saw that it was hung to her liking she came home and prepared to die. I loved how you included field notes which you called field notes which were passages at the end of your chapters that uh, were from Maggie's journal. Mm -hmm. And there's one in particular that I would love to just read. Um, and this pertains to her artwork and to this final season. I've been tromping through the woods for 25 years, foraging for wild plants and springtime ephemerals for my botanical artwork. 
I've stayed close to home in the Vermont woods, stopped along roadsides all over New England, and traveled far and wide in the Alaskan forests and tundra. Now it is fall. Not my usual collecting time for wildflowers and green shoots, but I am dying. I may not have time to wait for spring. Here in the autumn woods in Vermont, my heart leaps at the broken, eaten, rotting, golden foliage and the many colored fruits standing straight up or lying on the ground to plant their seed. Life is so rich, even as it prepares to die. I feel I never knew how much her soul was an artist. I never really quite knew that struggle in her until I watched it play out in a way that many people never get to do. Right. To say like, oh my God, this is what I have to complete. And oh, wouldn't it be great if we could know we wanted to do that from the beginning and not let all the things stand in the way. Of course we need to make a living. Of course we need to fulfill our our roles as as parents or children or whatever it is that we have taken on. But there's always room for the soul to sing its song and, and it's up to us to create more room for that before before we don't have the energy to do it. Right. And she really that is what she taught me. I also feel this book is just full of so many why waits. Mm-hmm. Why wait? I mean it just may not have to be full on, but just take a step in that direction. Why wait? Why wait to clean up our relationships? Why wait to to dig for the soul? Why wait mm -hmm. to do what we're meant to be doing? And even if you don't feel like you actually were, it, you, maybe you can't relate to this idea that like, I have a soul, I was put here to create something. The proof is in how you feel exactly. when you do right. what you want to do on a very um, authentic level. I'm not talking about I want to go out and like get drunk tonight. It's not like the the surface level want. It's the deep yearning to express something in you. Everyone has that. Mm -hmm. There was one um, passage in there of Maggie's regret and she said, there's only one thing I'm still chewing on, how I wasted so much time in my life not saying what I really meant, twisting myself into knots, trying to make everyone happy. Yeah, she really thinks that's what made her sick. She really believed that there were many years in there where she twisted herself into so many knots that it, it set the stage for her to be sick. Who knows if that's right. so, but that's what she died thinking. And I loved her words, her words to you, um, to her family on her deathbed where she said, be lovers, mm -hmm. love the earth and love each other. Love comes first. That's hard. It sounds so nice, you know. All of us spend a lot of time quoting people we love, you know, like Dr. King or Mother Teresa, the people we we put up on pedestals. And that's what they all say, you know, the golden rule. Love comes first. Treat people as you would want to be treated, with love, with being seen, with respect. It sounds so nice, we have it as our screensaver, but like putting it into practice is hard. It's not a Pollyanna fun little thing. It is hard. Or we go to yoga class and we say namaste and then we go out 
and, and like honk our horn in the parking lot. Yeah, exactly. Right. That's kind of actually right. sort of disgraceful. Um, I do it too. I'm not like disgraceful. It's <laughs> it's like you real you want to do it, do it in the little ways right. with the people in your life every day. Love comes first. I took that as um, my marching orders from my sister, and I try. You know, I try, I fail, I try, I fail. But if if you really make it your marching orders, right. you won't do it all the time, but it'll be back there guiding you. Well, at least there's an awareness, right? <clears throat> so I try, I fail, I reset. At least I acknowledge I just needed a yeah. reset. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I think that if we at least start to practice a new routine, mm -hmm. something else expands. Especially when things get hard, and right. things are hard, in our country right now, and you know, you said in my introduction to me, dare I say, you're an activist, and I have been an activist in my life. I've worked for a lot of causes. I actually believe right now that love is an activist choice because we're in sort of a tribalized time in the country, us against them. It's never in my lifetime, and you know, I lived through the 60s, and but in my lifetime, it's never felt so tribalized. Them, us, they're bad, we're good, they're saying the same thing. These kind of um, entrenched sense of us against them is what leads to genocides. If you're a history uh, student at all and you study, whether it's Cambodia or Rwanda or Germany, this is what happens. Demagogues get hold of polarized populace. And this is, this is where we are right now. The way to combat it is literally to, to try to love the other, to lead with love. Even if you're marching, to lead with love. It's, it's what the great ones tried to do. Has this propelled you to do more of this? with the rest of your family and have you continued? Yes, I definitely have two things. One, I have noted the people who want to go there and who don't through trial and error and then just through honing a kind of intuitive read of people right. and I've made peace after a lot of excessive trying because I'm excessive. I can do it. I can do it. I have made peace with the fact that you can't go there with everyone. Maybe your sister is so wounded. Maybe your colleague is a closet alcoholic who is so full of lying that he will cannot, cannot meet you there. But most people want to go there. But if you can't meet that person, how do you, you can't, you know, you still have your sister, you still you, have you, your... You be, to use the hackneyed Gandhi phrase, you be the change. You be it. You be it with so much integrity and love. You be love. And you be love with the most jerky people. And if they don't want to go there, you've tried. And the other people around will be inspired by your capacity to do strength to strength, even with someone who you may not think is worthy of it. And with the people in my life who do want to go there, I've been blown away by their courage and, and their 
uh, capacity to meet me exactly where I am. My older sister and I got the fruits of what Maggie didn't live long enough to. We have cleaned up our relationship to the point where I can't imagine it better. And it wasn't. And it's fantastic. Same thing with my friends, uh, the, the ones who want to go there. It's worth it. So this is going to sound like a little uh, digression. In the book you mentioned there's a question that no one has ever asked you in an interview and I thought that I would grant you that question. What two people, dead or alive, would you most like to be seated between at a dinner party? You know, I could answer that with lots of people, but in, in the chapter you're talking about in the book, it, it's a chapter called Reading Anna Karenina for the Third Time. Which is quite impressive, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, I did it because my father always read War and Peace once a year, and I thought, well, maybe I'll try to read Anna Karenina which is supposedly the greatest book ever written in the Western canon. And the first time I read it, I couldn't relate to it. The second time I read it, I was in the middle of getting divorced, and I related to poor Anna Karenina, who was this woman in a society who, she was having trouble in her marriage, but she wasn't allowed to act on it. The men were busy having all sorts of affairs, but she was supposed to stay married. And it bothered her so much that she ended up, spoiler alert, killing herself under a train. And in a way, you know, to go back to um, what you said about my sister and how she said she regretted not saying what she felt, that was her story. She was Anna Karenina. Uh, she stayed married for way too long in a very hard marriage. And so the third time I read Anna Karenina, I kind of related to everybody. I, I had a more big view of, of what Tolstoy was talking about. But I'm a feminist, and Gerda Lerner is, is a fantastic feminist writer. And she, she said, we all have to get rid of the great men in our heads and replace them with ourselves. And men have to do that too, but women really have to do it. And so I always wanted to be at a dinner party with Gerda Lerner and Tolstoy, who wrote Anna Karenina. And, and I, wanted, I wanted to say to Gerda Lerner, ask Mr. Tolstoy about getting rid of those great men in our head. And, I, and I'd like to know what he would say, given now that women are allowed to say what we think. Like, Anna, Anna wouldn't have had to kill herself. You were saying what you wanted to think since you were... You came into this world. I know. I don't know how that happened. <laughs> you, but it was really funny. I mean, this is another uh, digression, but you, you talked about how when you were very, very young, you were a seeker, mm -hmm. asking big questions. Yeah. I, I've always been a seeker, but I've also always had this penchant to say what I feel and say what I think you know, in our society of four siblings and one very strong father. He was definitely the king of our kingdom. Which you didn't understand yet. There was a passage in the book, you're saying, well, I don't understand it has a woman, how he gets to make all the decisions. And I was born that way. I was always standing up to him, which made the other sisters very uncomfortable. Right. Because it made him uncomfortable and angry. But I really don't know what it was in my particular personality or astrology or however you want to figure out 
how each one of us comes into this world with our personality. I always had a personality that was just like, hey, wait a minute. Yeah. That's, that's I'm not so <laughs> sure about that. Yeah. Hold on a second. So I also want to make sure we don't leave out the beautiful line from Rumi about the field of love. Would you, would you just tell us about that? Yeah. Rumi, the, the great Persian poet, the mystic, the founder of Sufism. Sufism is the mystical dimension of Islam. Anyway, Rumi uh, says, Out beyond ideas of wrongdoing and rightdoing, there is a field. I'll meet you there. That's the poem Maggie and I used in our therapy session. We wanted to meet in that field beyond ideas of you did wrong, I did right, I did wrong, you did right. Just beyond right and wrong, there's a field. I want to meet you there. That's beautiful. And in parting, what, what little nugget would you suggest or would you give to the audience to, to propel them to start their own mm. soul marrow mm. dive and to make, uh, make their way to mm. that field of love. Thank you. Well, first of all, thank you for asking such dear, beautiful questions and being who you are. Maggie said something to me in one of our therapy sessions, in the last one actually, when I was kind of beating myself up for something, and she said, you know, Liz, you don't have to be perfect to be my perfect match. I think we all resist going deep in ourselves and with the other because we think we have to somehow reach this level of perfection before we could ever reveal who we really are to the world. And actually, that's not what the world wants to see. You know when you see people's perfected image on Facebook or something, how does it make you feel? Right. It makes me feel like I'm such a schlump. I can never have a vacation like that, right. have a mate like that, you know? Like, I'm such, I'm just a loser, you know? But when you present your fullness, all your rough edges, all your, your realness, kooky mess-ups, right. your bad thoughts, you know, when you reveal that to other people, you're like, ah, another human. Because we connect in that space, right? That's right. When Maggie said, you don't have to be perfect to be my perfect match, what she meant was, look, look, we're matched, we're perfectly matched, even though we're both so raw, so undeveloped in so many ways, but we're still perfect for each other. Right. So that's what my, my thought I would leave is, you know, be your perfect, imperfect self and, you know, fly your flag with a lot of pride at just being human, just being here today. Thank you. Thank you for today. And I just want to give you a big hug. Mm. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Learn more at bestselfmedia.com.